0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown.
1: Petros and host of the Petroros podcast. This is episode eighty eight of the Petros podcast. Welcome back, folks. It has been a bit of a delay, but we have I've got you teed up with some awesome podcasts this month. Last month, I was in uh, Dallas uh, for the uh, Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance meeting in early June was very busy um, and slammed throughout the month um, and decided to, to wait to release these podcasts Now today, this podcast was recorded. It was super heavy hitting forward looking. This is a 30 minute deep dive market presentation non-stop you're gonna love it um this was recorded June 9th but today is July 12th and the world has changed quite a bit since then today we saw oil prices WTI nearly kissed 76 dollars a barrel we're seeing Brent around 80 dollars a barrel we have seen that spread narrowing significantly and really this was on the back of a lot of craziness from last week we had the ADP jobs report which was extremely bullish we added nearly 500,000 or about 500,000 jobs almost half of that was in hospitality and leisure there's a super large disconnect in the market right now between what's going on with hospitality and leisure and what's going on in the regular economy. And so last week you saw the market the market looked really poor and go down because everyone is expecting the Fed to hike rates because of that high jobs report. And then today, the inflation data comes out on July 12th, and inflation was t- trickling down. Now, not way down, but coming down. And so that makes everyone really bullish and thinking that hey, the Fed um, is going to be, the Fed is going to have to is going to slow down, and that's bullish for the stock market. I think we have to be very careful in how we're equating this to oil. Now, oil really pushed up today because everyone's excited that the economy is doing well, and oil prices are. Taking You know, that doesn't it doesn't actually make sense to me that inflation coming down um is bullish for oil prices okay it is bullish for the market and i understand where the sentiment is going but technically speaking if we're slowing and we're seeing slowing inflation that um if oil prices are ticking up that's going to be opposite of what's helping inflation and if we start breaking down the inflation numbers they're not as positive as you think so what we see in uh food away from home is still very very high it has come down a little bit but it's still extremely elevated we're seeing the same shelter costs barely came down we're still um shelter uh inflation is still extremely high and you're still seeing service services uh elevated and the jobs report we got two different jobs report last week we got the adp report which is extremely bullish then we had another report on friday which was a little less bullish and so the market was all over the place so if you're like typing in oil prices to cnbc or bloomberg you literally get two different stories between july 9th and july 12th and that's telling you so much of the volatility that's in this market right now so with that keep all that in mind we have china you know janet yellen the secretary of treasury went over to china uh, um last uh, a few days ago there was a lot of optimism with that saying that we were sort of resetting relations. you know we keep trying to do this. China has put um, export controls on on <clears throat> on two products in gallium and geranium um, and they, you know this is more you know threatening in nature if they could do more so the the China issue is the real story in terms of the the China issue with US and China in terms of our relationship is, is actually quite poor it's not looking good but everyone's looking for that that something to, to latch onto to keep the mar- stock market going higher um, or keep relations going better and that's that would be positive for China stocks that would be positive in terms of the China momentum and how the Chinese economy is going and that really really matters for oil so if you're baking in a, in a second half rally for oil prices if you're You're thinking the oil prices are going to sustainably go north of 76. You really do have to believe that the China recovery story is here and it's here to stay and that China is going to do a big stimulus package. And the tricky part of that is that China has not had a massive recovery in their housing. I mean, the housing crisis that's been taking place within China hasn't really bottomed. It hasn't followed out. And we, in order to have a recovery, a massive recovery um, and a bump in demand, you would have to have China really stimulate. And that would require building houses and doing infrastructure stuff which they're not going to be able to do unless it's sort of a Ponzi scheme and it's a tiered system anyway and they have lots of local government debt and lots of de- debt. Very, very complicated on the Chinese front. We'll be talking more about that in future podcasts. But with that, guys, I really hope you enjoy this. Um, we're seeing, uh, you know, 75 and change for oil prices right now. Um, I don't think it's a bad time to hedge because I'm not nearly as bullish as most on the second half of the year. Yes, prices can go up, but they can also go down. Um, and if you're making money right here, it's a, it's a good time to think about it. So hope you guys are doing well. Talk to you soon. Enjoy the podcast. Bye.
0: I'd like to introduce Tricia Curtis. She's the president and CEO of PetroNerds LLC, founding the company in 2015, and she began working full-time at PetroNerds in January of 2016. She was formerly the director of research upstream and midstream at the Energy Policy Research Foundation Incorporated in Washington, D.C., Since 2010, she has led extensive research efforts and major consulting projects, and authored several reports on the North American upstream and midstream markets. She was also the manager for strategy and analytics at Anschutz Exploration in Denver, Colorado. At Pedernurn, she leads research and consulting services, she is a macroeconomist, excuse me, macroeconomist with expertise in U.S. shale markets. She is globally recognized for her knowledge of U.S. shale and has been asked to speak and present at several forums, including OPEC in Vienna, Austria in Bahrain, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Stanford University, Chatham House, Oxford University, Denver University, and Colorado School of Mines. She is also the host of the Pepperdine's podcast, and she is doing podcasts from this location. Please help me welcome Tricia Curtis.
1: all right guys well thank you so much for having me here um i feel a little out of sorts because i keep thinking we're in oklahoma but we're not because this is an oklahoma thing um so we're in texas doing an oklahoma thing which i'm still excited about um so we've teed this up really well for this morning so you've had um you've had carl rove you'd have harold ham you just had that great talk and presentation on natural gas we just had a little bit of getting into what are the facts and what are the realities Um, I am tasked with something um, that's going to keep you awake because I've got, I was originally told 20 minutes, then this has moved to 30 minutes. So apparently we don't apply time in the rules exactly here. This is my first time at this event. So I'm going to try to keep this to 30 minutes. We are going to go around the entire world and touch on big issues. Just keep in mind that all of these are deep dives in and of themselves. So we talk about China, we talk about OPEC, all of these are little snippets. So you can come up to me afterward and talk about this. When I work with companies, I mean, I'm working with, you know, governments, I'm working with individual companies in and outside of the oil and gas industry, energy business. Energy touches everything that we do and impacts this business greatly. Um, so all of this is sort of interrelated, but feel free to ask questions even if you think they're, they're silly and uh, we'll get into it. So major takeaways. I mean, we'll cover ESG and the energy transition. I think it's extremely important to talk about because I think it's the elephant in the room that weighs on the industry. And in a place like this, where you guys are very pro oil and gas, it's a pro business state, it's a pro oil and gas state, and where you have fireworks last night and you're supportive of the industry, that's not the rest of the country, right? We, we have, Colorado is not a state that, is, that embraces oil and gas. And it's really important to realize that because the nation is shifting away and the politics in DC have shifted away too. Um, so, that's important to put it in context and understand the massive investor pressure and the ESG pressure on publicly traded companies and the lack of outspoken leadership. And I know people push back on this, but we do have a lot, we, we don't have enough leaders in oil and gas, particularly public companies, that are willing to talk positively about oil and gas. Uh, we will talk about OPEC and the global oil market. We will talk about US production and shale. And if we have time, and I haven't talked too much, um, we will get into recession and crises and, and the Fed and everything. So what you've had is a perfect storm. Um, and I say this is that you've had, you know, years of poor returns in the oil and gas sector. Um, not criticizing that, that's just reality. Um, you had COVID and you had negative oil prices. You had the, you, we've had this rise of this anti-oil and gas movement. And that's very important to appreciate in the context of when we're investing in this stuff. Um, these are people you don't just start an oil company um, and, and throw some cash at it and say, okay, we're, we're done in two years or we're done in 10 years. That's just not how this business works. So it's really important to think about this like any other business, how we invest in it. And with this rise of this anti oil and gas movement and this loss of this generalist and retail investor in the oil and gas space, we've got a conundrum in, you know, why, why do public companies want to buy back their shares? They're telling you they're buying back their shares because their stocks are not valued at the level they want them to be or they think the market should be valuing them at. There's a problem there because that means the market's not valuing inappropriately. And we have to then tell the story of oil and gas for folks to want to put those stocks in long-only portfolios and actually invest in them. Um, so we do have a very anti-oil and gas administration. In fact, we've never had a US um, administration that has been this anti-domestic oil and gas, ever. It's never been like this. Um, I had Carl Car- Rove on the podcast yesterday. We talk about this, of, of sort of this administration, but that's important to put in context. Uh, again, ESG investor pressure. I think executive pay tied to ESG metrics and the fact that most of us know, you know, ESG is environmental, social, and governments, but really nobody cares about the S and the G. It's all about the environment. And that's, and people just talk about it. It's not well, there's no defined metrics when we're trading stocks in the SEC. There's no definitions around this. So it's qualifications, not, Um, and and we're qualifying this stuff and we're talking about it and it's very subjective. Um, And then there's just a reluctance to talk about oil and gas, I think in general. I mean, leaders are beginning to talk about it. You are seeing a turn for Exxon and I I criticize, but I give credit where credit is due. And Exxon is turning a bit of a corner and talking more positively and pushing back. um, And that's important. Um, I have to throw this in here because you know, I knew I was going to be having Harold Hamm on the podcast, and I'm a huge fan, been following him for years, been cutting my teeth. I cut my teeth on, on Bach and Shale. And um, when your website says fiercely pro-American energy, that's pretty awesome. And it's what these, you don't see this across the board for oil and gas companies, and it's something that I would love to see more with public companies being very pro-American energy because We have this, we have this opportunity right now from a bipartisan standpoint with energy security and with China to really drive home this message of how important domestic um, oil and gas production is. And it's very important. So what are oil and gas prices telling us? Um, They're really telling us more than stocks are, right? Stocks are all over the map. If you followed what the stock market is doing with um, treasuries or what it's doing with actual stocks, almost all the gains in the stock market this year have been driven by 15 tech stocks. That shouldn't have happened because tech should be hammered because we have high interest rates, but it's all out of whack. And so oil is really probably telling us our best indicator of a forward looking that we are going into recession. Um, It's probably not telling us perfectly supply and demand fundamentals. I don't think 70 is exactly where supply and demand is, but we know that looking outward, demand looks weaker. And we also know we have a lot of supply on the market. Um, and I think it's really important to appreciate that because we tend to, as an industry, be, have groupthink and be very bullish about where the trajectory of price is. And Ham sat up here this morning and he told you that, hey, the industry has shifted their thoughts on the next two years, but that's only very recently. Most of the industry is pretty bullish on prices over the long term and that long term thinking kind of gets messy with the short term because right now we're sitting at $70 oil. But it's really important to look at That bottom of the chart, you see those traded volumes on WTI, how thin that is in the last two years. We have very thin traded volumes of crude oil and that means that we get these exacerbated moves and swings um, and that's that's a problem. And we just had OPEC cut, we'll talk about that in a moment, of these multiple cuts and they're cutting it, every time they cut, you get a modest spike in oil prices and then it comes down. So they're cutting into recession and they're cutting into a deteriorating market. And it almost never works for, I mean, it just never works for actually holding up oil prices. Um, the nat gas story is a wonderful story and a sad story at the same time because nat gas prices are just um, 228, they don't look good. But we saw $10 in MCF last year in August. We saw $100 in MCF um, for Dutch TTF. Now we're sitting under nine bucks Dutch TTF. Amazing story, the weather really did save Europe. I mean, Europe would be in a completely different situation had it not been for warmer weather. And we're just producing massive quantities of of natural gas and crude oil. And I, I put this chart up, I know you guys know how much we produce. I speak to a lot of folks in DC, I speak to folks all over the world. And they appreciating how much we've clawed back from our 13 million barrel day high in 2019. A lot of shale skeptics and folks did not think we could come back we're at 12.7 million barrels per day now we're doing that with a lot less rigs and and less people less everything in an inflationary environment this this industry is very good at um, working with the system so yes it's hard and yes there's been inflation and yes there's labor constraints and everything but we still managed to claw back a lot and the problem is with that production figure of gas it's 100, we're almost at 124 BCF a day of gross withdrawals. That's gross withdrawals, not all marketed, but that's a massive amount. That is over, the the world consumes and produces 400 BCF a day of gas, and we're producing over 100 BCF a day of it, and we're just clawing our way forward when we're not even actually going after much net gas. So all of that's associated. It's great, it's wonderful for the reservoir, you got a nice gas drive, but it's hard when prices are lower. And unless oil prices go down, you're not gonna see gas production go down either um, because you have all the associated gas. And when I say we're doing more with less, I know this is a rig count chart and everybody thinks they know it and it's no big deal and we don't have to look at it, but it is really important to appreciate historically where we're at and each time we drop in prices and each time we have a reset in the industry, we're not gonna go back to where we were in 2010 and 2011. We never need, we we didn't need those rigs. We came back down and then we're, we're down at, we, we haven't come back to our pre-COVID highs and we don't need to because we're almost at 13 million barrels per day and we have a lot less rigs and we're dropping off rigs now because oil prices have come down, but really because net gas prices have come down and a lot of oil companies are impacted by that. Now, on this anti-oil and gas administration, if you are a bull out there, there are a couple bullish theses. Um, Loss of strategic petroleum reserve not having enough and having geopolitical crises and risk, that's enough to take down, that's enough to spike oil prices. Those spikes I don't think are sustainable, but regardless, Um, This is a big deal when our administration has sold off a lot of strategic petroleum reserves and we have about 17 days of total demand cover. Um, Permit approvals, if you are in the federal space or you have federal land, you know this. Um, that is just just for color clarification, those are federal permit approvals under Trump in red, Biden in blue, those have really come off. And the reality is, is that if you are trying to re-up a permit or just get reapproval for an existing permit, which every administration pre this one did, including Obama, this one's not doing it. So this is a problem for future production in America and, and investment in the US. Um, and people think this isn't a big deal, but it really is a big deal. Um, the other thing is the overall communication, how we're talking about this is that you know G7 communique, this was the, we've been working at this for years between the US and Japan about what was the energy, what was the communique going to actually say? Um, if you go back in history and you look at our communications with China and these communiques, they worked out for years. And Japan wanted this to talk about oil and gas investment, particularly gas investment. And what came out was this pretty progressive document that talked about a lot of things and very little on energy, and it says, it can be appropriate, which is pretty mind-blowing in a 400 BCF a day supply and demand world that it might be appropriate to invest in oil and gas. And these are really serious consequences because when the US administration gets on television and says we might need oil for 10 years and this says we might, it might be appropriate to invest in natural gas, it's a problem because it's not sending the market appropriate signals to actually invest. And we know that because it's hard to get LNG um, export facilities built because we cannot get the investors in place. And so this is why people have to start talking about the industry and telling the long-term story and long-term demand story of this, as opposed to pushing the energy transition stuff, especially if you're an oil company, because we have to be able to invest and you have to tell people why they need to invest. Um, and you know, I have a lot of bones to pick with the International Energy Agency, but I think it's really important to appreciate if you're talking about net zero, if you are a company that has signed on to net zero and you were talking about it, I, I, there's problems with that. And that's because a lot of people don't understand what net zero is. Um, IEA, in 2020, the IEA came out and said, basically turned themselves into a somewhat quasi um, advocacy group. And they came out and said that it was their objective to come out of this COVID crisis, cleaner and greener. Um, in 2022, they basically said, hey, um, we're not, we don't have enough clean energy. This energy crisis that we're facing and this war in Europe, this is if we had more clean energy, that's wind and solar, basically, um, and batteries, that we would have solved this problem, which is just not true. And the problem is, is that in 2030, if you're an oil company, if you signed on to net zero, what net zero is in 2030, you have a 25 million barrel a day demand drop by 2030 which means we're all out of a job. Everybody in this room, if we have a 25 million barrel of demand op. It's not gonna happen, but it would crater the economy, crater the US economy, the world economy. And that's what, that's what net zero by 2050 is. So it's important to appreciate that. Same thing for net gas. We have to drop off net gas by three quarters of demand. Um, so demand outlook, all the demand outlooks right now in terms of the bullish ones you're hearing from OPEC or the IEA on oil is all rests on Chinese demand. And China, as, as uh, we had previous speakers talk about, China has not come back the way it was expected to. They lifted the zero COVID Band-Aid. I spend tons of time on China, um, way more than most people realize because I do a lot, of, a lot of work on it. And um, the economy is riddled with issues, um, not just debt. We got housing issues, um, you know, potential crises, potential war in the Taiwan Straits. Um, but there's a lot of risks to that demand outlook. So going in the future, it doesn't look, it doesn't look so great for the second half of the year. And we have OPEC plus cutting. So we've had multiple cuts. We just had a recent cut. Saudi Arabia added a voluntary cut of one million barrels per day. Um, they're trying to get back to this $80 figure. They're not getting, I mean, they're sort of hovering around that. But the problem is, is they were producing 10 and a half million barrels per day in April. Um, so we're just getting to this point where we're taking off barrels off the market now. Um, but it's not, it's not soon enough for in terms of a deteriorating market. And we have Russia. I mean, there's a really impressive supply story. We're producing 12.7 million barrels per day. Russia's got 11 point, over 11 million barrels per day on the market. Despite this war in Ukraine, Russia has had incredibly resilient production, incredibly resilient and really resilient exports. they are at record high exports of over eight million barrels a day of crude and product and all that's on the market and all that's weighing on the market. And that is fighting for the same places that Saudi normally puts their barrels. Russian crude is heavily discounted. Now, they have a lower break even than most people realize. I mean, pre-war in Ukraine, their fiscal break even for their oil is around in the 40s, in the low 40s. Um, Obviously, it's probably higher because they're paying for the war in Ukraine now, Um, but they are moving their crude. I mean, India's taken almost 2 million barrels per day. China's taken over 2 million barrels per day. It is finding a home and it's moving its way around the market. So we're one year on into this war in Ukraine and I think it's it's very important to appreciate that uh, it's going to be here for a while there's no sort of end game this is a bit of a stalemate and there are huge consequences of that the big consequences are war fatigue are the cost for this there's there's lots of ramifications and there's consequences to we're draining our ammunitions um, we've got lots of ramifications that, that impact um, energy and if you if you've seen this Financial Times article, there's an article about a company that was actually making ammunitions for the war in Ukraine, in Europe, to sell to, or to give it to Ukraine, and they couldn't get the power because they were fighting with a TikTok facility for power generation in Europe. No lie, 100% truth. But the point is, is that that's that's your map from one year. It's changed, it's switched all the way to the east, but it's ongoing and it's entrenched. And this war happened um, partly, not wholly, but partly because Europe gave Russia all the leverage that they could in terms of energy. So this is a chart, that orange line tells you European um, gas consumption. 55 BCF a day of gas consumption, 20 BCF a day of gas production. Gas production is on the decline. That, That gap in there, they have to fill with imports. Their exposure was 18 billion cubic feet per day to Russia alone. That is just not a scenario you wanna be in. And that is exactly what Europe and the rest of the world is doing with China now. They're just saying, okay, we won't get Nat gas, but we'll get all our solar panels and all our batteries and all of our transmission lines. And we'll get all of this stuff that we have to, all this intensive metal stuff that we have to process, we'll get it all from China. So same boat we're in. Um, this is the financial assistance to Ukraine. We have provided most of it. Um, I'm not criticizing this. I'm just telling you it is a lot of money and um, it's not necessarily sustainable, especially when we have high interest rates, especially when we have debt. And then if you have an issue in the Taiwan Strait and we have to do other things, if I'm China, I'm thinking, this is not so bad. I've got Europe, I've got the US, they're draining their ammunition, they're exhausting themselves. And then if I wanna go do something in the Taiwan Strait, they're gonna, be, they're gonna be fed up with this and they're not gonna have the supplies. So it's it's not the it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Now Russian trade Russian trade has grown for the past decade, um, really increased with China. So China and Russia is are very very trite. China has basically supported this entire war in Ukraine um, because they're the only country that's really doing this this cross border financing. It's it's that's that 80 billion mark. It's marched up each year. 2022 was a record year for trade, and that trade is really about. Um, Russia is sending um, is sending crude oil, they're sending grain, they're sending coal, they're sending all of that to China. China's importing that, they're importing that at a discount, huge benefit to them. China's sending solar panels and batteries to Europe, works out great for them. They're making that from coal, they're making that from forced labor. And then we have, you know, and Russia's getting things like autos and probably ammunition and all kinds of things from China as well. So it is working, but the risks in China are extremely serious and they have r- large ramifications for the global economy, which means they have large ramifications for oil demand which we're already seeing you have companies american and foreign companies getting raided in china left right and center um you have their i mean their economic growth is declining super super serious issues that's a whole nother a whole nother podcast and conversation um this is basically what i was just saying Tech and everything are the money and the trade flows and all this stuff going into Europe. This is important to consider when we're talking about we have an ongoing war in Europe and yet the increase in solar panel exports alone increased over 100% from China to Europe over the course of the war in Ukraine. So if you wanna know a country who has won Um, it is China during this war. And this is the trade with China, with Europe. It's gone up exponentially since the war in Ukraine. Um, That's a really serious given that, um, you know, Europe is supposed to be a democratic country, it's supposed to be bastions for human rights. That's the province of Xinjiang, that's from China's 14th five-year plan. There's massive, uh, the documentation on forced labor and labor transfer programs and all the internment camps and everything, I'm not blowing smoke, it's very, very real. Sheffield University has done tons of great work on it but it really does matter because they're in the crux of this whole ESG energy transition. And that is that they dominate the solar, not just onshore wind turbines, battery manufacturing, but also all the battery processing and almost all the supply chain for, for solar panels. So when you're putting solar panels on your roof, not only are they really poor and in inefficient forms of energy, um, do, by the time they get to these light bulbs, we've lost so much energy, but they are coming from China, they are coming from coal and they are coming from forced labor. And then this is the CO2 emissions problem that apparently everyone's fighting, um, but we're not really fighting it if we're not addressing the China-India challenge because we've reduced our emissions because we've put lots of natural gas into our system and we've pushed out coal. China has not. They're just exponentially rising in their emissions. They say they're gonna decrease it. They're not gonna decrease it. Um, That's just not in the plans. It doesn't make energy security sense for them. It makes no sense. And when we talk about decommissioning coal-fired power generation and decommissioning gas generation, we have to realize this. We have 4,500 terawatt hours of power generation in the US. We've flatlined in power production. That's not good. We should probably be rising. But you can see we have less than 1,000 terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation. China added over 1,000 terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation last year alone. They have over 5,000 terawatt hours. So it makes not a difference at all when you decommission a plant here and a plant there and you put people out of jobs and you take away domestic energy security in America and you give it to China. It's not a position we wanna be in. So U.S. shale, um, I'm gonna keep going with this. I'll probably go over time, but we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, so U.S. shale, we are not reinvesting, and that is a problem. For in terms of if you want to be bullish on oil for the long term, this is a part of your long-term thesis because U.S. domestic shale companies are just the reinvestment rate is down. Part of that's investor pressure. Um, part of that's government uncertainty. I think we really are underappreciating this. This is a. Notes that I pulled from the Dallas Federal Reserve um, of their energy survey. It actually is really good from all the companies that like weigh in and they talk about this stuff. And you get big themes, and that's inflation, that's a lack of labor in the space, that's mixed messages coming from the current administration, that's market risks, and that's lots of regulatory uncertainty. And it all weighs into these companies and the operators and their willingness to invest. And then I can't believe that Exxon actually said this because I'm so pumped about this because I talk so much about ESG and investor pressure and how it is impacting lack of investment. And Exxon has finally come out and said 100% because of the investor pressure on ESG, oil and gas companies in America are not investing. And that tees you all up, especially if you're private, to drill through this and capture all these gains. It also tees you up if you're public. And we do know this, that I think the industry is getting a little bit lost in thinking that, well, oil prices are gonna be high, so even if we have a bad regulatory environment, we'll live through it. This is not the Obama administration, okay? We are not, we have never been here before. So this, you gotta gear up for a really intense fight because if this continues to go down the path that's going, you're not gonna have a country that you're gonna be able to operate in. This is gonna be increasingly burdensome because they don't want you to do business in this. I mean, they they want to put this business um, out of business. Um, Exxon's net zero comments, again, gotta give credit where credit is due because they did such a good job. Um, This got leaked kind of, it wasn't leaked, it was a proxy statement, but Bloomberg Law pulled it. um, And basically they call out saying that they're not, that uh, IEA's net zero by 2050 plan is not going to happen. It's so infeasible that they're not gonna actually put it in their books. So that was impressive, it's worth a read. If we look at shale production, I mean, we're crushing it in the Permian. Over 5.5 million million barrels per day. Nat gas production is over that associated gas, over 21 BCF a day. But where we see this problem, New Mexico just charging ahead. I mean, two counties, Lee and Eddy County in New Mexico are just crushing it, almost producing 2 million barrels per day in two counties alone. That's just so impressive from a frack standpoint, from a rock standpoint, it's awesome. But if you flip over and you look at Colorado and California and Alaska, we're on this kind of terminal decline. In California, we lose about 3 million barrels per day each month. That is an example of a state that is not producing oil and gas. This ha- has huge impacts for domestic energy security. We could be producing a lot more oil and gas. We could be consuming that gas at home, or that, that oil and gas at home, and exporting it as well. Um, and we're, we're missing this opportunity. Um, lateral length, it's also really impressive what we've done, especially in the Permian Basin, increased lateral lengths. In the Midland, you have over 12,500 foot on average lateral lengths. Over, over the Permian Basin, you're at about 11,000 foot in lateral lengths. Con, consistently, we have operators pushing three mile long laterals. Um, and that just, you know, five years ago, people didn't want to do that. They were hesitant to do it because they didn't think when they fracked the toe of that well that they would get everything back. And now they're doing it consistently. And the recovery is good. We're not seeing, you know, we're not seeing decline curves get smashed. Very, very impressive, actually, what's happened over the course of the last few years, especially during COVID. And with that, we have seen the rise of the privates. And these are just your recount from your purple is private, your orange is public. That's the recount for the US. And you can see, you know, recount those private companies just came off to the races when prices were coming up, even even as COVID was happening. Permian Basin, same story. You have more private companies, you know, operated rigs drilling now than you did pre-COVID, which is an impressive story because everyone said that was not gonna happen. We didn't need all these small private companies. And this is what happens in a market where you put all this pressure on publics. But we are seeing the flip now with with prices. And if we look at completions, so these are holes actually poked in the ground. These are not ducks. These are are actual wells that have been brought onto production. And what you see for total US, those are stacked bars. Again, that public is orange and the purple is private. And that's all of the US. And that black line is WTI and those, Correlating lines are the rig counts that go with with those corresponding. You can just see we haven't added all the wells that we used to, right? We're not back to our pre-COVID levels of completions, which makes sense why we're at 12.7 million barrels per day and not 13 million barrels a day. Also extremely impressive because we're nearing 13 million barrels per day and we're not adding nearly as many wells. So something in the system is working. Um, In the Permian, you can see the privates really led this charge and the Permian is back to where it was, I mean, in terms of actual completions. This is where you really see the ESG, the investor pressure and the lack of willingness by public oil and gas companies to get back to work. You can see they just have not added those wells back and personally they did miss a lot. I mean there's a couple years where we had very high oil prices not 70 like we're seeing today and they missed out on that. Um, U.S. rigs, I show this map just so you can appreciate where we're at in terms of um, where these where the companies are at. So the purple companies again are private, The public ones are orange. And the reason I show this is so that you can see that the private companies have really expanded out. They're not, I mean, all the public companies are are cored up. They've got their nice acreage positions. That's great. And they've done well and their wells are great. But private companies have also done very well. And when you have high oil prices and especially high gas prices, you push these private companies out and they go and de-risk this acreage. So when people say it's tier four acreage and it sucks and we're not gonna do it, well you can look at also the duck map and see all these companies have really pushed the envelope of what we call the the top tier acreage and that's because oil prices are good and we've de-risked so it's an amazing story about with what the privates have done and then the public's come and gobble them up and it's a continual evolution that's going to keep evolving and continuing and we look at the productivity we given all of that given that the privates have stepped out given we've had all these pressures It's very impressive that the productivity, this is all major U.S. shale plays combined on a normalized decline curve, it hasn't been smashed. We haven't really diminished our our returns despite the longer laterals, despite everything. And that's impressive. And I'm gonna close with the economy, and this is a bit depressing, um, but it's not very good. So the U.S. economy, we are in a really big pickle and we haven't been here before. So if you're talking to your financial advisor, I would hope that your financial advisor has, you know, traded in the 1970s when we had stagflation. That is something you should ask them because, We um, have a big problem right now with the Fed um, not knowing what they're going to do, not forecasting it really well. Are they going to cut rates? Or, you know, the market thought they were going to cut rates. Um, They were going to raise rates in March, then they thought they were going to cut rates. And now we're back to whether they're going to pause or they're going to cut. We do have a looming commercial real estate problem. And the problem is, if you guys know about the regional bank issues, the exposure from commercial real estate to, the, um, to regional banks is huge. And all these loans are coming to re-up. And the problem is people have not gone back to work. They haven't gone back to the office. We still have so many people doing remote work. And so lots of people are not going to the office. And this is a double whammy impact on commercial real estate. You can see it if you go to Washington DC, go to Georgetown, look at how many empty buildings they have, go to any major city that should, have been, should be thriving and they're not. And this is, this is the day of reckoning. It hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. Um, Diesel is your single biggest, when we think about like gasoline dropping, and we think about recession and everybody doesn't think we're in a recession now because we're all going out to restaurants. I've been through a recession, 2008, I was trying to get a job in 2010. It was horrible, 10% unemployment. 2008 was the crisis, 2010 was the peak of unemployment, takes two years about, it lags. And we didn't stop driving, no one stops driving. The consumer doesn't stop actually spending, what they do is they stop spending on big goods and we stop building things and diesel demand gets hit. That's your diesel demand drop-off in 2008. We did lead the world in our demand drop-off in the, in, globally in the US. That was our diesel demand drop-off, that's your FedEx trucks not going as much, that's your rail cars not going as much, that's not drilling for oil, that's all kinds of things that we're not putting into the economy. We are seeing a bit of a decline now, that's our diesel demand right now, we have seen a bit of a softness and you're, see, you're hearing this across the board, you're hearing this from FedEx, you're hearing this from I mean, listen to Target, listen to Dollar Tree, listen to these companies that are um, not doing well, people are not spending, and think about how much you're ordering from Amazon. I'm guessing it's a little bit less than you were before, probably because of fees and all kinds of reasons, but it means that collectively and cumulatively it impacts oil demand. Um, Unemployment lags, everything sort of lags, inflation and interest rates. This is just a a chart to show you inflation, unemployment, and the Fed's fund rate or interest rates. This is May of 1980, we had 14.7% inflation. January of 1981, you had 19.1% inflation, and not until November of 1982 did you have 10.8% unemployment. And everyone's banking on us not losing jobs because we, just have, we, we do have a very sticky job market, and that's a big problem, but we're gonna have to lose jobs to cool off inflation. The only downward drive we, we've had in inflation is energy, is oil and natural gas prices coming down because everything has remained pretty sticky. And the biggest ones, food, Um, Food away from home has been really sticky. Um, Shelter costs, so housing, um, has been really sticky. It's up, it's still at 8.1%. And service costs, um, so the amount you're paying people is up too. Um, All those, when you start paying people more, they're never gonna go back to you paying them less. And so all this gets really sticky. And when this gets sticky and when this gets entrenched, those expectations for inflation get entrenched and they have horrible repercussions for the economy because it impacts growth. And we are in a very unique position where we've had this massive fiscal lag where we put $27 trillion pumped in the global system and the repercussions are this, it does not mean that we're not going to recession. It means that it looks a lot different um, and it's gonna be really messy and this recession is gonna be, we're gonna have um, high inflation with it, which is gonna be a problem. Also, our labor productivity is down, our output per hour is down in the US and our average hourly earnings are up. I hate to break it to everyone, but the work from home thing, not everyone is working as much from home. I work from home, so I, there are people that do it, but the data shows that it doesn't actually, that productivity is down, and this is not a good story for America, um, and it does need to be fixed. And lastly, I'll close with this, is that debt. Debt is really high. Um, we are a unique country in that New Zealand, Australia, all these other countries, they had massive housing booms during COVID. People bought houses just like we did. But their debt, actually, they don't have long-term 30-year mortgages. Those mortgages are rolling over now, so people are paying a lot more um, for their mortgages, for their day-to-day expenses because of the interest rates. That's cooling off inflation a lot quicker. We don't have that because students have not paid back their loans in three years. They're about to. They're going to have to pay back their loans two months from now. That is going to impact the economy because those average payments are about 500 bucks, and you've got lots and lots of debt. There's about $400 billion in the system of spending that otherwise wouldn't have been from students not paying off their debt because that's it. And that's one of your examples of just a big fiscal lag. You've got $17 trillion in total debt. Um, a massive amount of that, that red chunk is mortgages. And yes, a lot of those are low fixed rate mortgages. But if, um, one, if you were double income and you bought a million dollar house during COVID um, and you took out a $500,000 mortgage, if one person loses a job, even at 3%, that mortgage might be harder to pay off. And that's what people are not banking on, is that the job losses. And that credit card debt and those student loans, those are all going up. And those are for the young people. The young people are already delinquent on their loans and they haven't even started paying back their debt. So I apologize if that's a negative note, but that's how I'm gonna end it, um, because that's reality. So, (laughs) questions? Thank
0: you very much.
1: Yep, this is free consulting. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's gonna be very good. Um, so they've basically kind of televised that, right? Um, Jenny Yellen has televised that as well, is that they're not gonna bail out all the regional banks. And they shouldn't have done what they did, in my paint with Silicon Valley Bank, because they bailed out a bunch of billionaires. Um, and yeah, I don't think they're gonna be as quick to go bail out a regional bank in Midland that's exposed to oil and gas, because no one cares about oil and gas. Th- this could happen. I mean, we do have exposure for oil and gas from regional banks as well. So, but the regional banks is really commercial real estate. And um, they're, I don't, the shoe is eventually going to drop you're going to it has to drop somewhere and they're not going to bail them all out so you will have a problem but they're kind of leaning in on that too the fed is thinking well if this happens that's going to hurt the economy and that'll kind of that'll be deflationary so maybe we don't have to raise rates and so they're in a real big pickle between what to do with raising interest rates sticky inflation a more resilient consumer that's spending money on credit cards and buy now pay later and and wrecking up all his debt um, and young people that haven't paid off student loans, and then this looming commercial real estate thing, and they're all just kind of pretend kicking it down the road. Um, so when, when one of the shoes drop, we'll see. But I don't, I don't think they're going to go out and bail out all the regional banks by by any means. So you're 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 going to have some. You will. We will definitely have banks go under.
0: Yeah. Patricia, what, what's your long-term uh, outlook for natural
1: gas prices um, like, and also prices? Yeah. And a great question. Um, I, I'm more bullish I mean I'm very bullish on production. Um, so in the near term I think prices are probably we are range bound um, and we probably should be 60 to you know 75 given what we can produce as a country and, and actually what's healthy if we want to you know what's healthy for consumption and healthy for the economy. Um, globally, uh, I think, I mean, we have a lot of production and we know how to produce this in crude oil. So I don't think I'm not a pie in the sky, hundred bucks, it, it cannot stay there because we bring that crude with it. Um, so I think, you know, long-term um, it's lower than eight, you know, between 60 and 80 is a pretty, that's a pretty, that's a wide bandwidth. Nat gas, if we built the infrastructure, if we were actually to building LNG export facilities and we built a pipeline and we were able to do that in this country, which we need to be lobbying, and we need to be working on. Um, if we were to do that, I think you could easily you could get gas prices back up to four bucks and probably keep them there in a healthy environment because you have enough of an export market, and then you have enough of the production's coming. Right, no matter what, we're not going to we're not going to surge back to 10, 10 bucks an MCF. Probably, I mean, we can have these spikes, but if we had a nice demand market and we had this pipeline flowing and it wasn't up and down, that we would be in a much healthier, healthier space. So we developed the export market. I think you're looking at, you could easily say for long term. First of all, Um, I, I well, I, love I mean, it's partly why I do what I do because uh, I'm deeply passionate about it and pretty relentless, um, and I care about it. And obviously, you know, a, as you guys have seen, petroleum, petro nerds. It's more than that. It's all interrelated, electricity, everything. Um, so the industry has got. I mean, and I say this truthfully, the industry has got to. Invest in people like me, but in everyone. You got to invest. You got to put your money where your mouth is, and you need to be supporting nonprofits and you need to be supporting groups that are working on energy security, that are working on this stuff, because we're killing ourselves to get the message out there to do this stuff. And with the message, when you have all this consolidation in industry, the message from the industry is, you know, well, we're just, it, we, you're not in an AFE, and we're private equity backed, and we just can't afford that. And the reality is that they don't think this stuff matters to them, but it does, because it's all coming down the pipeline. And that's why I say it is much different than the Obama administration, because during in the Obama administration, you still were running. You were running and gunning and they talked big, but they didn't do too much. And then Trump came along and we we had low oil prices because he was pro-business, I mean, all the way, and pro-oil and gas. And so we were producing natural gas, or oil and natural gas like crazy. And that is really important to appreciate. When you have a pro-business administration and unleashing everything, you get different outcomes. Yes, you're going to have lower prices, but your flexibility in doing business, you're not going to be worried about the regulations. And that's really, really serious. Whereas now, we have an environment where we're the largest oil and produ- gas producer in the entire world, and we have all the geopolitical leverage, and we don't even have an administration that can get on TV and say, we are the largest oil and gas producer in the entire world, and we're comfortable admitting that. That's insane. And we have to, as an industry, push back.
0: Thank you,